I have a feeling that if Jonah, at the beginning of chapter 1, was here with us, he would have been singing that song too. And so we need to remember that we confess things, but we also need to live as if they're true. Jonah, knowing that God had told him what he was set to do, Jonah decides to withstand that. We started looking at this last week. We began to talk about this little interesting book, a book that is an amazing book, a book that is so, in one sense, simple that children love it and can understand it and recount it over and over again. They speak of Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the great fish. Children love this story, but it's a story that's so complex and layered with meaning that it resists simplicity in, in how it's explained. And as we study it, we find more and more depth. I often say this, but we think of even these little books. Jonah, the minor prophets like Obadiah in the New Testament, books like Philemon or Jude, short books. We think those are books that we could master, and yet there are scholars who spend their whole lives writing on those books. So we come back to Jonah today, and we want to look at this because... Even though this is the story of a prophet of God, the story of a man of God, of Jonah, God is using this story in a larger way, isn't He? That's why it's in Scripture. It's not just a a narrative about a man. It is a narrative about a man, but God is using that narrative to tell us important things. We spoke last week about the covenantal nature of this. Uh, It's no coincidence that Jonah is a, a prophet, if you will, of the covenant. He's a prophet of the old covenant. He's a prophet of Israel, and he is a man who has devoted his life, it would seem, to speaking on behalf of God, being his representative, his prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's itself a difficult job. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But we know here that this man who has been tested in the past, a man whom God has used. We look at 2 Kings 14 last week. God had used him in the past to declare a message to Israel. A message that came to pass. A message of the expansion of the northern kingdom back to its previous borders in an age of decline and an age of wickedness in Israel. And God still did this wondrous work for Israel because He had not forgotten them. He had heard their cries. And not only that, but He had not declared yet that their name should be blotted out. The name of Israel. What is that? That's the name of Jacob, isn't it? The one who wrestled with God, tarried with God, struggled with God... God wasn't yet at the point where he would say, we'll let that name as a nation um, be done away with. And so uh, he acts in this amazing way. And I'm sure Jonah, like most of us, when there's a a good event or a good tiding, we, we think, oh, this is a harbinger of better things to come, right? I'm sure he started thinking, maybe this movement of God will bring repentance and things will get better, but that isn't what happened. The northern kingdom continued in its evil way, continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord, and it would do so until it's taken in, in destruction by uh, the Assyrians. And many of the prophets are already proclaiming a, a movement of judgment at the hand of the Assyrians, much like in the southern kingdom, there'll be prophets arise who say that judgment is coming to the southern kingdom at the hands of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And those prophets struggled with it as well, didn't they? We want to be, don't want to be too harsh to Jonah. Jonah is struggling with this. He knows that judgment will come eventually to the northern kingdom at the hand of the Assyrians. He doesn't like it. Especially now when God tells him, go to the Assyrians and cry out against their wickedness. Now we said last week we want to deal rightfully with the text, although God tells us only at the end the real motive of Jonah here. We want to make sure we don't go down the wrong path as 
often people do and say things like, well, Jonah was afraid. Or Jonah hated Gentiles. Those don't seem to be true. The text doesn't tell us that. In fact, just the opposite. What Jonah hates is that God would extend his mercy to a people he hates. He doesn't like the Assyrians. They were wicked. We spent an entire point last Sunday establishing just how wicked a people they were. Jonah knew this. God knows it. God says that he knows their great wickedness. It's come up before him. He understands this. But go, arise, and go up to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim this message that I've given to you. And whatever his motives, and they are debated, we spoke about it last week, Jonah says, no. No, I won't go. Now, it's important that we say, I don't think Jonah thought he could derail God's plan. Jonah knows God is the sovereign God, the God who rules over all things. But I think it's possible Jonah thought, I don't have to be the one you use. I don't have to be the vehicle. In fact, instead of going northeast, if you will, to, uh, to Nineveh, I'm going to go more to the west and I'm going to go to Tarshish, this Phoenician outpost that's probably in modern-day Spain or France. That's where I'm going to go. I'm going to flee not from God, but from His presence. We talked about that last week, His covenantal presence. And I'm going to go to a place where maybe He doesn't speak as much as He does in the land of His providence. That doesn't mean that Jonah thought God isn't present elsewhere in the world. He tells them very quickly, I serve and fear the God who is the creator of the seas and of the land. Jonah knows God made it all, he rules over all, but he thinks, maybe if I make myself as far away from the place he's called me to go, I won't have to be the instrument of his mercy to a people I don't want mercy to fall upon. Now, if all of that's what we looked at last week, we see what he did. Instead of rising up and going up, he rises up to go down, down to Joppa, down to the port, down in the ship, down to Tarshish. We see in today's text he does some other things. goes down into the very bottom of the boat. The Hebrew is interesting. Down into sleep. And then down into the sea, down into the abyss, down into the belly of a great fish. So God is showing us something here. And uh, one great scholar said, uh, this is the effect of sin. Sin would have us go down, 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 down. Certainly that's true. But the story doesn't end there, does it? It doesn't end with Jonah going to the port and finding a ship. It follows him. And so I want us to look at the text one more time. And so let's read it once more. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, These are the mariners. Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? 
So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do with you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and took vows. As we discuss this text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, an interdiction at sea. Second of all, an appeal for mercy. And lastly, a display of glory. Beginning first with this interdiction at sea, as we enter today's text, as we just spoke about, we left Jonah withstanding God's call, boarding a ship to Tarshish, this great port city. And we don't want to make light of this. This is sin. This is disobedience. Jonah doesn't want to do what God has called him to do. He's tempted to find a way to to leave, to flee from the presence of God so that he doesn't have to do it. And amazingly, as he's tempted to disobey and to flee his calling, he goes down to Joppa and finds the means by which he might disobey. Now, if you've been reading your little book on temptation, the Free Grace Broadcaster, it speaks of this very thing, doesn't it? That oftentimes, as we are tempted to disobey, the means of disobedience is made available to us. Now, we can say this is in the providence of God to test us. We can say sometimes it's the wiles of the devil to tempt us. These things are true. In Jonah's case, we're not sure exactly except that he looks for a way to disobey and he finds it. St. Clair Ferguson was talking about something that he had read of Spurgeon, where Spurgeon talked about a, a friend of his when he was younger, in his younger days in school, that had a really bad temper, and that every time he got angry, he would throw something. And Spurgeon said, you know, I marveled at this. Not that he got mad. He said, everybody gets mad. I didn't marvel that he threw things. People throw things sometimes when they're mad. But he said, what I marveled at was every time he got mad, there was something at hand to throw. Always. And so Jonah, in this moment of temptation, comes to this place where the exact means of him falling into that temptation are made available to him. He boards this ship and goes out to sea, thinking that he can leave the presence of God and not be the man that God has called to do this work. So this is what he does. It's no surprise that this happens in this way, but but it does show us the folly of his actions, doesn't it? I don't know if Jonah thought, I've, I've been thinking about this, did Jonah think he would die somewhere along the line in his rebellion? Did he think, God will strike me down? But that's okay. That's okay because I would rather be struck down than be the vehicle of mercy to the people who will eventually be the vehicle of judgment on Israel. He loved his people. He loved his people. We see something of this with Paul in Romans 9. Paul says, I would rather be condemned myself if it meant salvation to my people. This might be something like what Jonah is thinking about. But nevertheless, he 
gets on this boat knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that God is the creator of all things. He declares it in this text himself. He is the one who has made all that is. All that is. And so I don't think Jonah thinks God can't reach him on the sea. Maybe he hopes he won't. Maybe he hopes he'll get to Tarshish and whatever will happen there happens. But immediately we see that whatever Jonah's plans are, God is sovereign. Notice the way the author of this, maybe Jonah himself, words verse 4. But the Lord. Jonah runs. Jonah flees. Jonah gets on a boat. Jonah has a plan. But the Lord does what? Sends out a great wind on the sea. It's interesting. The Hebrew word here actually is a root word that means throws. Maybe if you've got an ASB or an ESV, it says something like hurled a storm. Right? Hurled a storm. That's what it is. He threw it. It says that God took the storm in His hand and threw it at Jonah. Threw it at the sea. Causing this wind and this tempest and this great storm. God is the cause of this. Make no mistake about this. This isn't circumstance. This isn't happenstance. God has created this storm in this moment for His purposes. And notice Jonah is on this ship putting not only himself but everyone in danger. And by the way, that root word for throw is an important one. We talked last Sunday about down, 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 down. Well, there's throw, 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 throw in this part of the text. Because you look at this, it says that God threw the storm. The sailors throw the cargo over the side. How do we stop this? Jonah says, throw me over the side. And eventually they throw him over the side. Right, So it's exactly in this same sense, this wordplay in Hebrew of different uh, forms of the same words oftentimes give us significance to the meaning. The Lord has set all of this in motion. Now notice, it's not just that Jonah's on this ship. It's not just that this storm has created great danger. But actually, it is a dangerous moment for everyone on board that ship. Because if you continue in that verse, verse 4, It says that the tempest was so strong that the ship was about to be broken up. One Hebrew scholar said if we were really to translate that more literally, it's worded this way. The ship expected itself to crack up. Kind of some personification there. As if the ship is crying out, I'm about to break. I'm about to be dashed to pieces. Now, these sailors understand what that means, don't they? They're on a ship constantly. They're a normal creakings and poppings, cracklings on a boat made of wood. We know that. In buildings, there are creakings and poppings, aren't there? If you're ever in this building alone at night, you'll be surprised at the sounds you hear, right? The building pops and creaks and you think, is someone here? No, it's just the building. It makes noises. You get used to them. You begin to recognize them. And you do on a ship as well. You hear the creaks and the pops and the cracks of the boat and you recognize That's what a ship sounds like at sea as it shifts and the waves hit upon it. But there are unnatural creakings and poppings and cracklings that are not normal. These are ones that are telling you the beams themselves are crying out they're about to break. To use the same sort of personification that is used here in our text. The ship was declaring to the sailors, I'm about to break apart. Very much like we think about in Acts with Paul on a boat that experienced a shipwreck where the boat began to be dashed to pieces. The sailors would recognize this, and we see that they clearly do because they are terrified. They begin, these experienced men of the sea, mariners who were used to all manner of storm, you know. If you're on a boat 
and the sailors get worried, that's your cue. This is serious, right? If they're still like, hey, it's fine, relax, you're okay. But if you start seeing them panic, now you know there's reason to panic, right? They're experienced. They're experienced. They know what is normal and what isn't, and they begin to panic. What does it say? It says, they were afraid and that every man called out to his own God. Every man called out to his own God. Do not forget these are pagans. And biblically and theologically speaking, people often say, well, Jonah's put innocent people in danger. Well, the Bible wouldn't call them innocent, would it? They're they're worship idols. These are men who profane the living God by worshiping false gods. The Bible is clear on this over and over again. But he has put people in danger who aren't a part of his sin, right? These people are not a part of his sin. And they realize that they are in danger. And so it says they first cried out to their own gods, every man to his own God. Oh, God of whatever, deliver us, save us, help us in this current moment. We are about to perish. It doesn't abate the storm. It doesn't do anything to weaken it or to lessen it. So what do they do next? The text tells us they took an extreme measure, an extreme measure. It says they went down and they took the cargo and threw it over the side into the sea. My friends, when your entire living is made transporting goods from one port to another, to throw those goods over the side is to wreck yourself financially. When the captain gave permission to these sailors to do that, he was saying the ship is about to be lost. If we are financially ruined, then let it be, but we will at least maybe survive this. So please don't think this is just a little bit of choppy water. This is the point where they're saying we're about to die. We've got to lighten this ship Because as the ship is underweight and sits lower in the water, the waves are coming up on and bringing water inside the boat. We've got to raise the boat up, lighten the boat up. And so they say, throw out whatever we can throw out. Now, many people speculate on why the captain comes down into the the bow of the ship. I think this is the exact reason. He's going down to find what else can be thrown over. And ironically, he stumbles upon the one thing that he could throw over the side that would avail here. He stumbles upon Jonah, who is sleeping, sleeping. Now, if there is an irony or something surprising in this text, it's how can Jonah be asleep? The very man for whom all this is set in motion, how is it possible that he is oblivious to what is going on? Many say he's exhausted. That's got to be true. There is an exhaustion, right, from running from God. Now, this is a man who knows how serious God is, knows God's holiness, knows God's righteousness, knows God's sovereignty. He has been running, ran to Joppa, got on a boat, and maybe now finally he's found a comfortable place and he's gone to sleep. But there might be a spiritual meaning here as well, right? Of how sin can begin to stupefy us. That's the word that Matthew Henry uses when talking about this. He says that sin is of a stupefying nature. Satan draws us from God to rock us to sleep in carnal security. Jonah's unaware of what's happening around him, unaware of all the danger that is happening around him. Though other people are screaming and fretting for their lives, Jonah's asleep. How do you even sleep in a rocking boat? Well, Jesus slept in the middle of a storm, didn't he? But I think for a slightly different reason. He had complete confidence and faith in in, uh, God's sovereignty, right? Jonah who I think would also understand God's sovereignty, I think is sleeping at this moment because he is a little bit 
stupefied to the situation around him. This serves as a reminder of something important. Our sin puts other people in danger. There are consequences for our sin that we often don't recognize. We think, well, I mean, if I'm sinning, I'm just bringing it on myself. Well, maybe not. Nations are judged because of sin. Families fall into great difficulties because of sin. Certainly we do as individuals. But there is a reminder here that because of Jonah's sin, trouble has come to more than just Jonah. Those around us in our rebellion, sin, and withstanding of God can deal with what our sin brings. And we can be oblivious to it. We can be oblivious to miss all of it. And so while those around us are distressed by a storm that is sent to deal with our own rebellion, we're asleep. We, we don't even notice it. This is why the Puritans used to say, keep your accounts short with God. Keep your accounts short with God. Now, that's an old world reference, isn't it, to, uh, to debt tabs. But keep them short. Go to God. Repent of your sin. Recognize sin is serious. God is holy. That hasn't changed. Whatever they want to tell you today, God is holy and righteous, and He does judge sin. But as we continue in this, we want to see there's also an appeal for mercy here. Many appeals for mercy. One thing is for certain, whatever Jonah's doing, the crew isn't sleeping. The crew is wide awake. They're in dread. They're in a frantic fever trying to figure out what they can do to survive. Appealing to the mercy of their own gods did not do anything. Well, no surprise, their gods don't exist. Realizing their end is near, what can be done? Well, we just spoke about the captain who's below deck and he's been looking for cargo and he stumbles upon this one man. The Septuagint has an interesting translation because of the depth of the sleep of Jonah. It says he was snoring, that the captain stumbled upon him in his snoring. Now, the Masoretic doesn't say it, but the idea that they're getting that from is he was in a deep sleep. And I guess in Hebrew way of thinking, if you're in a deep sleep, you're probably snoring. But, uh, but whatever the case, that's what it says. He was in a deep sleep. And the captain is as, as, as dumbfounded as we are about this. What are you doing? How can you be sleeping at a time like this? Or as he words it, what do you mean you sleep? Or what do you mean by this? How can you be sleeping right now? We're all about to die and you're down here taking a nap? What is wrong with you? Now this is certainly a chastisement of God's prophet at the hands of a pagan. Think about that for a moment. In the midst of life and death, you're sleeping? Arise, O sleeper. Call upon your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. You know, one of the interesting things about this uh, text is he uses a form of Elohim. We know this word, right, in the the Hebrew Bible. Elohim is the word for God, or it can be plural, gods. But in this case, it's Ha-Elohim. It means like true God, perhaps Your God is the true God who can deliver us from this. I think that would be the evidence, right? If you've got the true God who's caused this storm, He'll be the one that can abate this storm. So cry out to Him that we may not perish. Maybe He'll take note of us. Maybe He'll look upon us. Maybe He'll recognize our need. Maybe He will deliver us from this present moment that we may not perish. So this is a fever pitch. Now, up on top of the deck, Things haven't stopped, have they? It tells us in the text that they're doing something as well. They're saying, look, our prayers have not worked. Our lightning to load has not worked. There's one more thing we need to do. We need to discover who's to blame for this. 
so we can deal with it so that we may not die. Now, we can find this throughout uh, even the Scriptures, right? In Acts, Paul is shipwrecked. He's on the island. A snake bites him. Do you remember this scene? And the people think, oh, Paul must be a murderer or a blasphemer. They list several charges against him that must be true because how would a snake bite him unless it's the judgment of God? Now, they have this view. This storm is caused by someone's affront to a holy and righteous God. They're right. At least in this case, they are right. You know, we often live in a world today where when people say things like, well, maybe this storm is a judgment, people go, oh, no, 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 you can't say that about God. Well, here's some people that said it, and the Bible says they were right. They were right. Sometimes God deals in judgment. My friends, we need to recognize this. The Bible doesn't shy away from it. And so here is this moment where they are in trouble and they say, we have to know who's to blame. There's only one way for us to deal with this. So what do they do? They cast lots. Now I heard one commentator, read one commentator who said, we're not too much into casting lots today. And he said, we often think we're above that. But he said, actually, it might speak of our disbelief in God's sovereignty today. Right? The early church certainly believed in it. I mean, we have what? The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision belongs to the Lord God. There are many places in Scripture where lots are cast. How about when Judas has to be replaced? And they've got two men who seem qualified. Now, notice they're not saying, let's take unqualified men and cast a lot. They're saying, we have two men who are equally qualified, and we cannot decide who it is to be. So they said, you know what? Let's cast lots. Let's let the Lord decide. And that's what they did. That's what they did. My friends, they believe if they cast lots, God will identify who is the one that is responsible. And guess what? Again, they're right. Again, they are right. They cast lots and the lot falls to Jonah. To Jonah. So here is an appeal to God for an answer. There's an appeal already given by the captain. Cry out to your God. They've already appealed to their own gods. And now they come to this moment where they know who the person is. He comes up and they begin to question him. And look at the questions that they ask as they appeal to mercy through God by finding out what's going on with this person. Why has this happened? That's a good place to start, isn't it? What's going on here? What is your occupation? They they get an idea that something may be related to what he does and the way that he's offended God. Where do you come from? What is your country Of what people are you? Now Jonah answers some of those questions, doesn't he? He may answer more. In fact, I think it implies he answers all of them. But we don't get the answer to all of them. What does he answer? I am a Hebrew. That's the people he's of. That also tells them where he's from. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and land. It'd be very easy for us to think that's all he said, but we know he said more. Because it says here, that, uh, that they knew, this is in verse 10, that he had fled the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he had told them. So there are things that he told them that we don't have recorded for us. So we don't know the fullness of the conversation. We have the parts we need to know. But he told them this. That tells me they probably realize he's a prophet. He told them, I was supposed to go to Nineveh and proclaim a message of judgment, but I didn't do it. I'm on this ship with you guys. I'm going somewhere else. I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord's people, His covenantal presence. And what do they say? 
Why have you done this? This is a Hebrew way of saying, what were you thinking? What are you doing? You've not just brought judgment on yourself, but on all of us. Look at what your actions have caused. We now will all likewise perish because of your insubordination, withstanding of God, disobedience, whatever term you want to use. Jonah, you've brought your guilt on all of us. On all of us. Now, it's interesting that as Jonah speaks about his Lord God, the covenantal name for God, he says, He who made the sea and the land. That's reversed the order almost always used in Scripture. God of land and sea, creator of land and sea, creator of earth and sea. Here he says, sea and land. I think this is something of the fact that he's in the predicament on the sea, right? He recognizes God is not the one who just made the land. He also made the sea. And we could get into some theology there of what the Bible says about sea and its chaos and its connection, if you will, to Sheol. But that's a little deeper than our purpose today. Just recognize this, that Jonah is answering these questions. This is on my account. And when they say, well, what can we do to alleviate this? What can we do that the sea might calm for us? He has the answer. Throw me into the sea. Pick me up and throw me in. Jonah is not willing to kill himself. He's not willing to throw himself into the sea. But he says, if you throw me into the sea, this is what God has sent the storm for, then then you will be delivered from this storm. Now they've entered a catch-22. Notice this really quick. If they obey the prophet of God, who they recognize now to be a prophet of God, if they obey him, what he says to do, they may be guilty of his blood, of murdering a prophet of God. Nobody took this lightly except Israel, apparently, when it came to killing prophets. But these men say, we don't really want any part of that. God may still bring judgment on us for killing him. But it's a catch-22 because if they don't obey him, they've already declared that he's a prophet of God and they're disobeying the word of the prophet of God, which might also bring their doom. They are in no safe place now. There is no easy answer for them. And so what do they do? Let's put it off. Let's not kill him. Notice the text says that immediately they began to steer the ship toward shore. They're going in for a safe landing? No. No. Storms get worse at shore. In a major storm, the waves are worse. You'll be broken to pieces on the rocks. That's why in a major storm, you take your boat out to sea if you can get past the storm. If you can't, then you just get off the boat, right? But here's the thing. When you start steering in toward the shore, you're saying it's already too late. The ship will break apart. We're going to get as close as we can and then ride it in, ride the pieces in, whatever we've got to do, much like what Paul did in Acts. So they're giving up on the ship to keep from killing Jonah. But notice, the storm rages, picks up in its tempestuous nature. They cannot get to shore. It's not God's plan. There's no off-ramp to this. God has already prepared what must come to pass. You don't believe me? Look at the verse we haven't read. Verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared, had already prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. God already has what's going to take place. Jonah will be swallowed by this fish. They're not going to get an off-ramp to the shore. This must take place in this way. 
And it does. And it does. So realizing they have no other answer, they make one more appeal, this time to heaven. To the God of Jonah, they cry out now with Jonah's God's name. My Bible says, Lord God, this is the way of uh, specifying the covenantal name of God, Yahweh in the Old Testament. They cry out to Yahweh, let not this man's blood be on us. We just want our lives saved. We just want to survive this. And then they say something very interesting. O Lord, after all, you have done as it has pleased you. We're just recognizing that we're just in the midst of whatever you're doing. We're just in the midst of it. So, as we might sing, have your own way, God. Have your own way. And if we can survive this, that's what we'd like. If this man is guilty, we're going to throw him to the sea and give him over to you to do with as you please, O Lord. They think death. Jonah thinks death. If we're reading this for the first time, we're probably thinking death. We know that this doesn't go that route because of God's mercy. But that's what they do. They throw Jonah into the sea, and immediately it says the sea calms. As we begin to close, I just want you to think about this. If there was ever a confirmation that this was what was the case, that Jonah is the culprit, how about that? You throw a man into the water, and as soon as he goes beneath the water, it all just goes calm. If there was ever a visible evidence, he was to blame. It was his guilt. It was his guilt. There it is. What a display of the glory of God. Any question as to whether or not God was at work is immediately answered. God was in this. We don't fully understand how. We don't fully understand how. And these are pagans. And I'm not going to argue these have become faithful worshipers of the one true God. Some people jump there in the commentaries. They have been evangelized and become believers. I mean, they have some level of trusting that, that God has done as he pleased. And they sacrificed him. They make vows to him. Is that one in addition to their other gods? Or have they truly learned this is the one true God of heaven uh, who created all things that exist? I pray that they did. Maybe they go to Tarshish and they begin to evangelize. But it doesn't tell us that. It just says they made vows and they sacrificed. We had to be careful to take that too far. But we do see in this, don't we? Some answers to questions on what's going on in this book. The people who say Jonah was afraid to die, well, that doesn't seem to hold up, does it? As soon as there is a moment where Jonah can solve things by his death, he says, throw me in the water. He doesn't try to talk them out of it. He doesn't try to whine his way out of it. He says, that's the only thing that's going to stop this. Throw me in. I can't jump in myself, but if you throw me in, God will bring calm to the water. We'll also see it, by the way, when he goes to Nineveh, preview, right? Oh, just kill me now, God. He said that, I think, twice. Just kill me now, right? Don't make me look at these Ninevites receiving your mercy. What about the idea that Jonah hates Gentiles in general? We dealt with this last week. That's not the case either, is it? Because Jonah can kill these Gentiles if he wants to, would seem. He could just simply not tell them what they need to do. And the ship will break apart and these Gentiles will go to their death with him. He's going to die one way or the other is what he believes. Either I die on this ship with you or I die outside the ship on my own. 
But Jonah says, I, it's better that I die on my own to save the life of others. And now we begin the sign of Jonah, don't we? The sign of Jonah that will speak of resurrection. But here already, of dying on behalf of others. Jonah's death, will you die that others may live? As Matthew Henry says, it is right for this man to die for the people, playing on the wording of the Gospel of John. Certainly there are others on the ship who were worse sinners than Jonah. Sinclair Ferguson said this. There are certainly worse sinners on the ship than Jonah. Jonah has erred in a major way, but he's not a pagan. He's not erred over and over, we would imagine. I mean, he sinned as we all do, but, but there are certainly worse sinners. But it's this man that the tempest pursues. It's this man to whom the lot has fallen. It's in this moment that Jonah says, Throw me over, I will die, and the storm will calm, and you will live. This incredible typology of Jonah, incredibly important typology for the New Testament, begins here. We spoke in our Sunday school class, we're going through Galatians, about a preview of where we're going to go soon. Jonah's a type of two interesting figures in the New Testament. And the other one is Simon Peter. Simon Peter. You'll see some amazing parallels as we get closer. But just as, here's, here's one parallel for you, going to the city of Caesarea to do what? To bring God's good tidings to Gentiles. He gets a, he gets a dream, doesn't he? A sheet of unclean foods that for years his people have been told, do not touch, do not eat. He says, take up, kill and eat. What does he say? No, Lord. No, Lord. I have never eaten these unclean things. What does God say? Do not call unclean that which I've called clean. Go to Caesarea. Evangelize these Gentiles. And see what amazing ways God will move. My friends, as we see this, this is a story of judgment and of mercy. We see the judgment here. Judgment on sin, judgment on rebellion, judgment. But it's a judgment in this case that leads to mercy. Mercy for the sailors. Mercy for Jonah. And mercy for Nineveh for a time. My friends, we should never forget what this story is telling us about our God. He is sovereign and He is glorious. And it's best if we don't withstand him, but realize that he does all things well.